The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. This morning, we continue our fall sermon series, Detectives of Divinity. From now until Thanksgiving, Fifth Avenue Church is studying the role that wonder plays in the life of faith. We're reflecting on stories from scripture in which individuals and communities suddenly find themselves standing in the presence of God and then we're looking at the world and our own lives through the same lens. All we've been saying over and over this fall, awe is a doorway to the divine. And we've observed that these doorways come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Last week, we considered the ways in which communion, the, the Lord's Supper, and, and really all suppers and, and breakfasts and snack times, all, all moments when we break bread, if we are attentive, can connect us to God and to God's purposes. Today, we turn our attention to the realm of ethical behavior we're going to consider how acts of moral goodness can nurture seeds of awe in us, can, can usher us into the presence of God. To help us on this journey, we're going to read a fascinating passage from the Gospel of Luke. In this text, Jesus reflects on his own ministry and on the ministry of his cousin, John the Baptist. The story starts when John, who's, who's in prison, sends messengers to inquire if Jesus is the one. This is John's way of asking, are you the Messiah? Let's listen to the answer that Jesus gives as it echoes to us today from Luke chapter 7 beginning with the 22nd verse. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. And then Jesus asks, To what then will I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is the word of God for you the people of God. Thanks be to God. In his book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life, Dr. Keltner, professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, takes readers on a tour of the landscape of wonder. To better understand the things that that human beings find to be wondrous, Keltner and his team of researchers from around the world in, in different countries and different cultures invited these folk to keep awe diaries, a daily awe diary. Every night, individuals participating in the study were asked to write about experiences from their day that stirred up feelings of awe. I love the idea of an awe diary, a daily record of wonder. Clearly some of you do too. Ever since we started this sermon series for the past month or so, members of this church in person and in our far-flung family have been sending us or, or posting on social media your own experiences of awe. We've received stories, watercolor paintings, and even, I got this in the mail, a beautiful quilted pyramid as testimonies to people's experiences of wonder. Keep them coming. It's been moving to share in your experiences of awe. The awe diaries that Keltner collected 
were analyzed by his team and they yielded similarly powerful stories and became the source of many of their insights into awe. And I want to start there. According to Keltner, those diaries immediately made it clear that awe is not a rare thing. Humans experience awe in varying degrees every single day. And as such, the All Diaries identified a startling array of events and places and encounters that give rise to the human experience of wonder. As you might expect, many of the diary keepers reported experiencing wonder in the natural world, on a hike, or while bird watching, or standing at the edge of the ocean. Others describe moments when the arts, when, when music or theater, paintings or poetry gave rise to wonder. We're going to be talking about those two sources of wonder, the natural world and the arts, in weeks to come. Still, you might be curious. What was the most common place identified in those diaries that people regularly experienced wonder? Here, the Awe Diaries revealed something that came as a surprise, a pleasant surprise to me. The most common context in which people experience wonder falls within the realm of moral behavior. It could be an in-person experience, a story on the evening news, an event described by a friend, but the most frequent way in which human beings on this planet experience awe is when they witness other people doing good. Who'd have thunk it? Watching someone be ethical can actually make us swoon in wonder. This morning, I would like for us to consider the implications of this finding. In today's passage from Luke, John the Baptist, who is in prison and who is, quite frankly, facing a death sentence, at the hands of one of the Bible's great narcissists, King Herod, John sends word to Jesus. John asks if Jesus is the one. And Jesus responds saying, go tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Tell John, says Jesus, all sorts of good things are happening. People are being cured and helped and encouraged. Tell John about the feeding of the 5,000. Tell him about the five lepers that were healed. Tell John about all the good that you see going on over here. On hearing this report, I imagine 
John picking up his awe diary and simply writing, wow. And that could be the end of the story, <laughs> the end of the sermon. <laughs> but it's not. At this precarious moment, an ominous cloud hangs over these two men. John the Baptist sits on death row. Within weeks, he will be executed. Against that grim backdrop, Luke's gospel seems to set Jesus and John up as rivals, two religious figures with vastly different approaches to ministry, vastly different visions for what faithfulness looks like. John the Baptist, of course, was, was the prototypical fire and brimstone preacher. He thundered and threatened from his pulpit down by the Jordan River. He demanded that people turn from their sinful ways. His sermons evoked the image of an axe, a literal axe, a, a heavenly weapon hovering above the heads of recalcitrant souls ready to sever them from the tree of life and toss them like, like so many sticks of kindling into the furnace. Compare this fiery approach to the ministry of Jesus. Christ's approach looks like an entirely different animal. Jesus encourages people to call God Abba, a word that some say we should translate as daddy. Jesus talked about grace and forgiveness in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes God as a woman who methodically sweeps every corner of her house looking for lost coins, lost souls. And Jesus preached this persistent reconciling love, love for self, love for neighbor, love for enemies, love for God, every waking moment. Jesus and John the Baptist had radically different approaches to ministry. And yet in today's text, Jesus defends his cousin. Jesus praises his cousin's approach to faith. He's a prophet, Jesus asserts. Heck, he's more than a prophet. I tell you, Jesus continues, among those born of women, no one's greater than John. What's with all these accolades? I ask because in this world, we've come to expect that strong differences of opinion will inevitably lead to volatile arguments character attacks, and even violent confrontation. This doesn't happen in today's story. Jesus doesn't disparage John. Jesus doesn't seek to cancel John. Jesus doesn't advance a motion to remove John from his prophetic office. Why? I think we know the answer. John was a good man. 
His methods, his theology, his demeanor were not anything like Jesus. And yet Jesus does not see these very real differences to be an indication that John's moral compass was somehow skewed. Every day, John beckoned people to embrace righteous behavior and holy living. And so despite their differences, Jesus praises his cousin. Of course he does. He knew that John was a force for good. I lament how rare this sort of simple recognition has become. You're different, but you're still good. I wonder if our inability to see good across divides of opinion in this country, in our neighborhoods, in our families, helps to explain the conflict and chaos that consume us. Ironically, and perhaps prophetically, this is precisely where today's text wants to go. In Luke chapter 7, after complimenting John, Jesus does something fascinating. He wonders aloud if the people of his time have lost their ability to discern the good. Here's how Jesus puts it. To what then will I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to one another, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We wailed, but you didn't weep. The children of this age, says Jesus, want a show. <laughs> they ask their prophets to dance. They call them to weep. They want drama. <laughs> Their fleeting attention spans insist on these small dramatic displays. They sit around and they demand, in the words of grunge rock star Kurt Cobain, here we are, entertain us. What will be the fate of a generation who prefers drama, over substance. What happens when people flirt with morality but exhibit no desire to change their own behavior? The result, says Christ, <laughs> of a life of shallow pursuits and petty satisfactions is a tragic sort of cynicism. We can no longer recognize the good. We're not even sure there's anything good out there at all. Listen again to what Jesus says in this passage. For John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he's got a demon. <laughs> and the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This passage has got quite an indictment embedded here. 
You condemn John, says Jesus. You say he's too intense, too radical, too out there, too demanding when he points toward God. And then you turn around and condemn me, says Jesus, saying I'm too kind, too loving, too inclined to hang out with the wrong sort of people when I point to God. Nothing can satisfy you. You've stopped looking for solutions. You've stopped yearning for change. You're settling for empty calories and momentary pleasures. You are petulant children crossing your arms. Here we are. Entertain us. It's quite an indictment. And of course, this passage makes me wonder, maybe you too, are we so different? Does Christ have our generation pegged? Maybe that poor, tortured soul, Kurt Cobain, was right. We prefer entertainment to inspiration. We don't have the gumption, the follow-through, the courage, or the ethical stamina to pursue lasting change for this broken world. We've become addicted <laughs> to the next click. We, we thirst only for that tiny droplet of dopamine, the next minuscule buzz from our smartphone, and then the next, and then the next. We swim in a shallow pool of meaning for incredibly brief periods of time, and in so doing, we've lost our moral bearings. We no longer have an appreciation for the good. And, and if this is true, we're in trouble. <laughs> Societies that can no longer see the good, discern the good, recognize the good amidst moral chaos are ships without rudders. Without steerage, every storm is worse, every gust of wind a threat. Fortunately, though, my friends, this text does not end in a shipwreck. <laughs> this is not, that's not where Jesus leaves the disciples. And it's not where he leaves us. Although you have to wait for it. <laughs> the good news in this text comes at the very end. It's contained in a single word, one word uttered by Jesus. After acknowledging that we live in a rudderless world, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I love it when the word nevertheless pops up in the good book. Nevertheless is, is a hinge. It's the dawning of hope. The world's in a bad, bad place. Nevertheless, things are downright awful in Ukraine, in Israel, in Madagascar in Washington, D.C., nevertheless, God is still God. Nevertheless, God is still good. And what's more, there are opportunities, even in chaotic moments like this, to see deeper truths. Nevertheless, says Jesus, 
wisdom is vindicated by her children. What is he talking about? Last week, I listened to Porter Binks, former clerk of session member here, describe an event that happened at the end of the Notre Dame Duke college football game that occurred eight days ago. With less than a minute to go in a hotly contested back and forth game, Duke quarterback Riley Leonard was sacked and he fumbled the ball. Notre Dame recovered. To add injury to insult, Leonard was down on the field, writhing in pain with a high ankle sprain. Eventually, he was carried to the Duke medical tent, and Notre Dame ran out the clock to win the game. Curiously, after the final whistle, after celebrating and the, the shouting, Notre Dame quarterback Sam Hartman stayed on the field, and this game was at Duke, I think. He did not rush to the locker room with his excited team. He walked over to the Duke sideline and waited. He waited outside the Duke medical tent for Leonard to emerge. He waited for some 20 minutes. And when his football rival emerged on crutches, Hartman went over to embrace him. This story, Porter observed, has been getting a lot of ink. He went on, I think I know why. It is a rare and beautiful thing to see grace, to see honor, to see someone extend care to a rival in a world where so many seem only capable of caring about themselves. Huh. What's that thing Jesus said? Wisdom will be vindicated by her children. My friends, things are bad out there. The temptation in this time, to paraphrase Jesus, the temptation that comes amidst the world's many troubles is to turn inward, to follow shallow, self-involved paths. Dance for us, weep for us, entertain us. What a mess. But then that word comes. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is an alternative. Nevertheless, there is reason to hope. Those will, willing to shelve apathy and cynicism, those who yearn to wade into the deep and risky waters of faith are going to have chances, so many chances, to see goodness at work. Tell John, says Jesus, the lame are being healed and the poor have good news brought to them. Good news. Do your soul a favor, says Jesus. Choose inspiration over entertainment. Bind stories of goodness to your heart. Allow them to order your steps. That is wisdom.
And you, says Jesus, are wisdom's children. You know the truth of nevertheless. You know when everything is falling apart that the future lies in God's hands. And you are capable of acting accordingly. My friends, when all seems about to fall apart, remember this word. Nevertheless, and then go forth in the courage of your faith, holding fast to what is good, returning to no one evil for evil, strengthening the faint-hearted, supporting the weak, helping the suffering, honoring all people, loving and serving the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.